We are in the book of Genesis, and the book of Genesis is no doubt one of my favorite books of the Bible. There is so much here, and um, it's quite a long book, and we're only in the 11th chapter, but it is so rich, and there is so much there. Now, we went through verse 9 last week, and... We stop there because from verse 10 on is the genealogy of Shem, which leads us into Abraham. But I'm going to not go uh, to the end of the, of the chapter today. Actually, last week when I prepared verse 11, I had a, a portion of this message that I purposefully put to the end. And instead of it becoming a segue into chapter 12, uh, it just really turned into a message of its own. And it deals specifically with the power in unity. Uh, God ordains power in unity. So I want us to read together the first six verses of Genesis chapter 11. Now, is, this is the story of, uh, gives us the account of Babel, the building of the Tower of Babel, the city of Babel. And we've just come out of the flood, and uh, men have, uh, Noah and his family came off the ark. And we talked about how the ark and the flood, all of this foreshadows, it pictures Christ and the cross, everything. From in the beginning, God said, let there be light, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses. These are all types and shadows revealing Christ to us. Remember, we we use this... uh, analogy, this picture that God is painting the shadow while holding the substance in view. And so when we talk about these things, we talk about them understanding that the substance that God holds in view is Christ. It is the gospel. So the Old Testament is not some irrelevant book of history. Absolutely not. The Old Testament is rich and full of the gospel. It is the very Scripture that Jesus preached and taught His disciples and revealed Himself using the Old Testament Scriptures. He used the Old Testament Scriptures to reveal Himself to His disciples. And the Old Testament Scriptures still today reveal Christ to us. And the New Testament is full of commentary to help us understand how Christ is revealed to us through the totality of the Scripture, both old and new. I could go on for a long time there, but I I can't. I don't have time to do that. So let's get to it. Let's uh, read the first six verses, and let's talk about unity, the power of unity. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, Let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built, And the Lord said, Indeed, the peoples are one. They all have one language. This is what they begin to do. 
Now nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. And then God said, says God came down there and he confused the language and scattered them over the face of the earth. They ceased building the city. So God confounded their purpose because ultimately he would bring about his own purpose in Christ. So I want to take these six, these six verses of chapter 11 and I want to talk about how God ordains power in unity. So after the flood, man is unified with one language and one speech, and he purposes to build a city that reaches heaven and to make for himself a name that will keep him from being scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, I would encourage you to go online, and you can listen to last week's message, and we talk in depth about Babel, the Tower of Babel, how Babel is the antithesis or the contrast to Zion, the city of God, and how when God confused the language at Babel, it was the antithesis or the contrast to Pentecost when God came down and he unified man to do the work of God in the Spirit. At Babel, it was the work of man in the flesh opposing God. At Pentecost, it was the work of God in the Spirit to empower man to do the work of God in the earth. And so all of that, we go into a lot of detail and I talk about that, so go online and you can listen to the first part of chapter 11. Uh, and, and you'll understand when I talk about types and shadows and God holding the substance in view as he paints with the shadow. Uh, you'll understand more fully what I'm talking about in that. So here is man who is now purposing to build the city to reach to heaven. He's opposing God. He does not want to be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And God says... Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And in verse 6, it says, And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that, is, that they propose to do will be withheld from them. So God in His grace, here's the grace of God, church. It's the grace of God then. It's the grace of God in our life today. We often propose to do things. We often have our own purpose and our own purposes, but God in His grace does not allow us to always fulfill our own will and our own purpose. These men purposed to do something. It was in opposition to God, whether they willfully, whether they knew it or not. I believe we have evidence that many of them did know it. But oftentimes we do things not knowing that we're in opposition to God's will, and it's the grace of God that confounds our own purposes so that he can bring about his purpose in his time and in his way. That is the grace of God. That, can, that, that sometimes confuses us, that sometimes frustrates us because we have things that we want to do, we have things that we've purposed to do, and sometimes we wonder, why, why doesn't this work out? Yes, we're in spiritual warfare. There's a battle that we're in the midst of, but, but we've won the battle. I heard a quote this morning I thought was so awesome. We're not, we're not fighting this for victory. We're fighting this from victory. Christ has already won the victory. But there is still a battle that's raging. And sometimes God in His grace confounds our own purpose so that He can bring about His purpose. And in His time, this is what Ecclesiastes says, He makes all things beautiful in His time. You might not understand what God is doing in your life right now, but trust Him. In His time, He will make 
all things beautiful. I promise you that. So the power that resides in unity is great. A people who are one and know it is a people with the power to do things that otherwise would not be done. In Christ we are unified and empowered as one body, the Scripture teaches us, by one Spirit in love and faith. The feats achieved by sinful men, unified in the flesh, in fear and rebellion against God. This is what was happening at Babel. These were sinful men, unified in the flesh, in fear and rebellion against God, opposed to God. What those men, what sinful man can do, unified in the flesh, in fear and in rebellion, should inform us of our very great position in Christ to achieve much for the glory of God, unified in the Spirit. So we're going to talk about unity today. And we're going to talk about unity from the point of view of the Scripture, not just from a surface point of view or from an obvious point of view or from an outward point of view. The feats achieved by sinful man unified in the flesh in fear and rebellion against God informs us of this position that we have in Christ, that our unity is by the power of the Spirit in Christ. It's not in the weakness of our flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul the Apostle writes these words, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. This is a picture of, of oneness and of unity. This is who we are as the body of Christ. It doesn't matter what color our skin is. It doesn't matter what sex we are. It doesn't matter what our social status is. It doesn't matter what our ethnic background is. None of that matters. It doesn't matter whether you've got a beautiful bald head like mine or whether you've got lots of hair. It doesn't matter. What unifies us, what makes us one, is the Spirit of God and the life of Christ. So Christ is the only source of true unity. In Christ we become one. We are now brought together and made one in Christ by the work of God's Spirit. It's not our language, our ethnicity, our culture, any other natural or temporal thing that makes us one. We are brought together, unified, and made eternally one in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Right now on Wednesday nights we're going through the book of the Gospel of John and we're in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And it's often been said that this is the only prayer of Jesus that has not been answered yet, but that's actually very wrong. The, the prayer of Jesus has been answered. We are one in Christ. The problem is we don't know that we are one. The fact that we don't comprehend our unity, the fact that we don't comprehend the finished work of Christ that has made us one in Him, if we have been born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The fact that we don't comprehend that, the fact that we don't always act that way, has nothing to do with the finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ always goes ahead of our comprehension. Our comprehension of the finished work is always lagging behind. And our lack of comprehension doesn't mean the work isn't finished, it just means we don't comprehend the finished work. So the fact of our unity is not in question. It's do we comprehend our unity? Do we know that we are one? How do we know that we are one? Because this is what the Bible teaches us. 
because the Bible in very clear and explicit terms reveals what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished, what He has brought us into. This is the prayer of Jesus in John 17, that we are one in Him as He is one in the Father, and that we are one together in Him as so that what that means is Jesus is one with the Father, and if we're in Christ, we're also one with the Father because we're in Christ. So we're not separated from God any longer in Christ. If you are in Christ, and listen, God only knows people two ways in the earth. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. That's the only distinction God makes. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. Period. That's it. And if you are in Christ... Just know that you're there by the grace of God, not because you worked hard for it, not because you deserve it, not because you climbed a ladder and worked really hard to get there. No, you're there by the grace of God. And if you are there, you've been brought into unity and oneness with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, your comprehension of that may be vastly different. You might have no comprehension of that. And this is the Scripture's command that we renew our mind, that we no longer be conformed to the world, but that we renew our mind, that we be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So, unity is in the power of the Spirit in Christ. Unity is not that we get it all right on the outside all the time. Does God want us to get it right? Yes, He does. Does God want us to be unified on the outside? Yes, He does. But until we comprehend the unity that we have in Christ, we can work on all the exterior stuff all we want. It's kind of like a house. You can paint the house, make it look really good on the outside, but if it's a pigsty on the inside, do you want to live there? No, you don't. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. And that's exactly what he was saying. It all looks really good on the outside, but on the inside, it's full of death. The way God does his work is not from the outside in. The way God does his work in us is from the inside out. You get born again, you're not going to look any different on the outside. The change that must take place and does take place first is on the inside. Will it work its way out? Yes, it will. But understand this, the work of God is not from the outside in, it is from the inside out. And this is how unity works. So Christ is the only source of unity. In Christ we become one. We're brought together and made one in Christ by the work of God's Spirit. So the scattering of many at Babel brought to light the true condition of man's heart that is in rebellion against God and one another. Why? Because of sin. So the unity that existed based on external and temporal realities such as culture and language, they had one language, they were one people. They were unified in their opposition against God to build this city, to build a tower that reaches into the heavens so that if God would flood the world again, they would never, they would be above the waters. They totally disregard the word of God. God said, I'll never flood the world again. 
I gave you a sign, the rainbow, the bow in the sky, that to remind you of my covenant with you. They disregard the covenant. They don't, so they're going to do their own work. They were unified by all the externals. So in Zion, or in Babel, man was unified in his defiance and his rebellion against God. But in Zion, the city of God, we're unified in the person and the work of Jesus Christ who has joined us together in Him and the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're unified in the Spirit, not in the flesh. The source, the power, the reality of our unity are in Christ by the Spirit of God. We are one because we have been crucified with Him, putting away the flesh and brought into the Spirit of life in Christ. So our unity flows from the eternal reality and truth that we are made one by the power of the Spirit in Christ. Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, remember, when God brought the flood, He told Noah, He said, I'm going to bring a flood and I'm going to destroy all flesh. So the purpose of the flood was to destroy all flesh. He said, I'll not strive with man more than 120 years. That's not a lifespan that we can live up to 120 years. That was a time span where God says, in 120 years, I am going to destroy all flesh on the earth. It was a countdown for Noah in his preparation to build the ark. And the point of the flood was to destroy all flesh. That foreshadowed something. That foreshadowed the judgment in the cross. John 12, 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And if I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all to myself. That flood in Noah's day was a shadow for telling, for picturing the judgment God would bring at the cross. And at the cross, God took away the flesh. How do we know? What does that mean? What's the implication for us? Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, here the Bible informs us. So Paul the Apostle writes in verse 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Why? Because God's done away with flesh. Because God doesn't relate to flesh. Because God does not relate to man according to the flesh any longer. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now let's go to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now. Let me back up just a, a couple of verses because this is important. But as we come into chapter 8 from verse 7 in Romans Verse 24, Paul writes, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. He's talking about the flesh. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Why? Because Jesus Christ has delivered him from the body of death. So then, with this, with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Anybody have that problem? I want to serve God in my mind, but I'm weak in my flesh. If you feel that way, don't worry. You're not the first person that's ever dealt with that issue. Here is the great apostle Paul who says, this is my issue. This, I'm, I'm, this is a reality. Why? Because Paul lived, he lived in a, he lived, his life resided in a flesh and blood body, but his life was not of his flesh and blood body. His life was of Christ. His flesh and blood body was just a container, a vessel that contained the true life, which is of Christ. That didn't make the flesh and blood body that contained the life of Christ. That didn't mean that flesh and blood body was less sinful and that it didn't have its own agenda. So that's what we're going to read about here in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Christian, listen to me. Listen to the Bible. Don't just listen to me. Listen to the Scripture. The Scripture says if you are in Christ, you have been set free from the law of sin and death. How were you set free? You were set free by the spirit of life in Christ. So I want you to note this. If you are in Christ, you are free. Period. There's no ifs, ands, or buts there. You are free from sin and death. I didn't say you don't have struggles. I didn't say you don't have temptations. I didn't say that. I said you're free. Because that's what the Bible says. Verse 3, let's continue. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Christ did what you could never do. Christ came, lived a sinless, perfect life in the flesh and condemned sin in the flesh. That's why your death and my death means nothing. But the death of Christ means everything because Christ was the one man from before the foundations of the world. He was the one man God purposed to walk the face of this earth in sinless perfection, to go to a cross, die a death you couldn't die, pay a price you couldn't pay in sinless perfection, a sin to the Father, and that death atoned for your sin. And satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. Because he was sinless in the flesh. Verse 4. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. For those who live, listen to this, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. This is why the renewal of your mind is so important. To be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. As you are renewing your mind to the finished work of Christ, 
your mind is catching up with the reality of the finished work. Just because you don't fully comprehend the finished work doesn't mean the work's not been finished. Are you in Christ? Do you trust Christ as your only hope and your only Savior? Do you love Jesus? If the answer is yes to those, you notice I didn't ask you, are you living a perfectly moralistic and sinless life? I'm not asking you that because I know the answer to that already. You're not. I don't have to ask you, do you fail and make mistakes? Because I know the answer is yes, you fail and make mistakes. We all do. The question is, are you trusting Jesus? Are you trusting the grace of God in spite of your mistakes, in spite of your failures? Do you love God? Do you desire for God to mold you, shape you, renew you? That you desire that you no longer be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Is that desire in you? If the answer is yes, then here's the good news. God put that desire in you, and that is a sign that He is doing His work just because you have not caught up in your mind to the reality of the finished work of the cross doesn't mean the work has not been applied to your life. doesn't mean that the Father doesn't know you in Christ and love you. Oh, you need to read. You need to meditate on John 17 and love you the way He loves the Son. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus prayed for us, that the Father would love us the way that, he lo- that the Father loves the Son. That the Father would have the same love for you that He has for His Son, the Lord Jesus. That's what Jesus prayed for you. That's what Jesus did for you at the cross. Just because you don't comprehend that, because that seems unbelievable, doesn't make it less true. So what's the solution? Get in the Word of God. Meditate. Pray. Seek the face of God. Let God wash your mind with the water of His Word and renew it to the truth of the finished work of Christ. You say, what in the world does this have to do with unity? It has everything to do with unity. Because typically the way we judge others improperly, in a condemning way, is because we put the same judgments upon ourselves. If I feel like I'm doing a really good job behaving well for God, being righteous for God, and I've got, I've, I've got self-discipline, I've got all my ducks in a row, why can't you? Look, I conquered that problem, why can't you conquer it? I used to have that habit, but you know, I don't have that habit anymore because I'm spiritual. What's your problem? Now, see, if we understand our salvation, if we understand how we came to be saved, if we understand what Christ did for us, that we could do absolutely nothing for ourselves, we're not going to look at other people and judge them in the same way. We're going to look at other people and we're going to have grace. That doesn't mean we allow them to continue in their sin because the Bible is very clear that if we see our brother who is trapped in sin, you who are spiritual, in other words, you who understand that it's by grace, not in pride, not with condemnation, but you go to them in humility And you help that brother out of that sin because you love him. If you walked by someone trapped in a pit, would you help them out if they were crying for help? So grace enables us to see others in a different light. Grace enables us to see others in the same way God sees us. 
Grace enables us to see our own sin before we look at the sin of others. Grace enables us to see God's grace given to us so that we can give the same grace to others. And so Paul says, let's go back to Romans, verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That word carnal means flesh. The fleshly mind, the mind unrenewed to the truth of Christ, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, that, I don't know about you, but that begs a question for me. The question automatically when I read that scripture is, am I in the flesh? Because if I'm in the flesh, the Bible just now told me that I can't please God. And I want to please God. So how am I going to please the God? How am I going to please God? Well, we know how we're not going to please God. We are not going to please God in the flesh. We're not going to behave well enough for God, for God to be pleased with us. We're not going to be righteous enough for God in order for God to be pleased with us. We're not going to get our life together and looking really good enough for God to be pleased with us because God cares nothing about those things. Because God doesn't relate to us according to the flesh. God only relates to us according to the Spirit. We just read that in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. We therefore know no man... We regard no man any longer according to the flesh. We knew Christ according to the flesh, but we don't even know Christ according to the flesh any longer. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Paul says right here, So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But, look at the but in verse 9, very important, but you are not in the flesh But in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Does the Spirit of God dwell in you, Christian? If you call yourself, if you are a Christian, the Spirit of God indeed does dwell in you. Otherwise, you're not a Christian. Otherwise, you're not born again. To be born again means the Spirit of God dwells in you. In the Bible, not Pastor Jeff, not philosophy, Not theory, but the Bible. The Scripture says that if you are in Christ, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are no longer in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. Now here's here's the reality. Because we confuse these terms and we think flesh and spirit. We think flesh is real, it's tangible. And spirit is some, no, that's not what this means. You are real. You're a real person. Look, I went camping this week. And if I could take my shirt off right now, days later, I'm not sure how it happened, but I mean, I'm like blistered right here. It hurts. You know why? Because this is real. But the Bible says I'm not in the flesh any longer. That doesn't mean I don't have a body. That doesn't mean I'm not really on the earth. This speaks of our position, how we relate to God. God 
God could care less about this flesh except that it gives expression to His Spirit in me. You understand that? When I say God doesn't really care about this flesh, He's going to let it get old. He's going to let it die and pass away one day. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, the Bible says. Why? Because God doesn't relate to us according to flesh and blood any longer. He only relates to us by the Spirit. So where does my spirit and where does Christ by the Spirit dwell in me? Inside this body, inside this jar of clay. It's a vessel. See that Gatorade bottle on the table there? How many of you have a collection of empty Gatorade bottles at home? Anybody? Yeah, but you're not keeping them to pass down to your children as a heritage, are you? No. No, eventually they're going to go in the landfill or be recycled. Why? Because we don't really care about the Gatorade bottle. We care about what's in the Gatorade. We buy the Gatorade because we want what's in the bottle. Listen, God doesn't care about our flesh, our bodies, but He redeemed it. He purchased it because one day He is going to redeem it because right now it gives expression of His life that dwells in it on the earth as a witness. That's why He cares about it. That's why it's important now. And then one day when we're in heaven, we're going to have spiritual bodies. That doesn't mean we're not going to have real bodies. It means they're not going to be of this flesh, of this world. They're not going to be sinful. So Christian, you're not in the flesh any longer. You are in the Spirit. If Christ dwells in you, you've got to get this. And that is true for every one of us who are in Christ. This is what makes us one. This is the source of our unity. So the unity we have in Christ is eternal in the Spirit. So we can unify in the flesh. We can achieve nearly impossible feats that are based on all sorts of things. But all of that will eventually fail. And it eventually leads to death. Romans 8.13, Paul goes on in that chapter. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will die. Live And how long will you live? You will live for eternity. Why? Because the gift of life that Christ has given to you is eternal. What you have in Christ is eternal life, not temporary life. Eternal life. Man can have all the appearances of being unified, but there's only one true source of unity, and there's only one way and one place Man can truly be one with each other and with God, and that is by the Spirit of God in Christ. This is the picture presented in the flood and in Babel. The destruction of the flesh and the works of the flesh leading to death in order to bring about the unity of the Spirit in the life of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, go there, verses 1 through 6, let me read it to you. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Here's why. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you 
all who's in you all, who is in us all. If we are born again, if we are in Christ, Christ is in us. One Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism. Do you see the picture of unity? Where is that unity? It's not just in the fact, it's not because we're all in this room together today. We're all in this room together today today because of a much greater reason, a much more eternal reason, because someone eternally lives in us. And we eternally live in someone. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And He is the one. He is the point of our unity in Christ. Even what appears to be disunity is swallowed up in the reality that we are one in Him. We are not one because we always agree or see or do the same things the same way. Or because we have a common language or color or ethnicity. We are one because we are one body in Christ with one spirit. I tell couples when I do premarital counseling with them that they should fight for unity. Now that sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? But it's, it's the truth. Because marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. We should fight for unity. In the church, we are one in Christ. We should fight for unity. What does that mean? That means we fight against division. We fight the temptation to divide. Husbands and wives fight the temptation to divide. Brothers and sisters in Christ fight the temptation to divide. Why? Because God has made us one in the Spirit even when we don't act like it. I got four little grandbabies. And two of them are old enough to be up walking around and they don't always act like brothers, but they are brothers. We are brothers and sisters if we are in Christ. And unity is worth fighting for. In Christ, we are new creations created to give witness. Our unity in Christ is not based on temporal or external realities, but in the eternal, spiritual realities we now have in Him as a new creation. Those Spiritual realities are to manifest outwardly to give witness to the world and to the heavens of God's wisdom and glory. Listen, God works from the inside out. The point, the source, the power of our unity is something internal and eternal in the Spirit. That doesn't mean God doesn't want us to love one another. Caleb talked about it in communion. It's why we come to the table. It's why the elements are real. It's why the bread is real. The cup is real. You're real. We are to really love one another. We are to really be joined together as one. We are to really fight for that unity with one another. We are to really give a witness to the world. And this is what the scripture says, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. Do you hear that? God has chosen to make known His manifold wisdom. How? By the church. That's us. To who? To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
What was the purpose? It was an eternal purpose. That means before the earth, before the moon, the stars, the sun, before you and I ever existed, God had an eternal plan in Christ Jesus. And it was to make known, not just to things and people here on this earth, it was to make known to powers and to principalities, the manifold, the many-sided, the variegated wisdom of God. You are called. You have been created and recreated. If you've been born again, you have been called to do that, to give that witness. Husbands, wives, your marriage is much greater than yourself. Your marriage is a picture, it's a witness of Christ and His church. All of us, married, single, young, old, all of us are giving witness to powers and to principalities. There are angels and demons that watch us continually, that wonder at who we are and what the Creator has done in dying for us on a cross. They can't comprehend it, the Bible says, but it's true. In our very existence, our life on earth, our walking out of this faith, the Bible says, is to make known through us the wisdom and the glory of God. We are created and called to give witness. We're not only called to go and do. Listen, more importantly, most importantly, we are called to go and be. Listen, the power of the gospel working in us is not that we can do something. It is that we are to be someone. We are to be the embodiment of the life of Jesus as a witness to the world. The power is not in what we do, but in who we are. The Bible says we are the body of Christ. We are to live in the overflow. It's not what we do, but who we are. The overflow of our life is not on a schedule that runs one or two or more days of the week or the month. Your witness is not just coming to church on Sunday, though that is a witness. I want you to think about coming here as a witness, a witness to your neighbors, a witness to your friends and to your family. Listen, when my family comes to visit, and I don't see my family very often, but my family knows when they come to visit me, they're coming to church or they're going to sit at home without me. Just the way it is. And I don't do that to be mean or to, you know, be snooty or because I take seriously and it was that way before I was a pastor. I used to be just the person sitting in the pew like you were, okay? Because the Bible says, the Scripture teaches us that our life is a witness. What is your life witnessing? Not just on Sunday morning. Sunday morning is important, but what is your life witnessing on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? Listen, I'll tell you right now, I blow it a lot. That's why I'm so passionate about the grace of God. And I understand that apart from the grace of God, I have nothing. I am nothing. None of us are anything apart from His grace. So the overflow is not on a schedule that runs certain days. The overflow of the gospel, which is the life of Jesus, should be a constant flow. This is why Jesus said what He did about a flow of living water from, the in, from his inmost being. John 7, 37 through 39. Look at this. 
On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Do you see that? Those believing in him would receive the Spirit. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus spoke these words during the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles was the feast that celebrated God who would come and dwell among his people. Christ not only dwells with us, but Christ dwells in us. And we dwell in him. Tabernacles has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus now. Christ in us. The hope of glory is what Paul writes in Colossians 1.27. Acts 17.28, Paul declares this, In Him we live and move and have our being. So if you are in Christ, the fruit of His Spirit is to be the constant overflow of life manifest in and through you. This is not simply about what you do at certain times, but who you are all the time. Ultimately, what you do will be determined by who you are. The question is, do you know who you are? Or more importantly, do you know whose you are? Who do you belong to? Do you belong to the world? Or do you belong to Christ? We're commanded to go and to be who Christ has recreated us to be. We are to give witness to Him as to as we live and as we move and as we have our being in Him. So we're commanded to let His life be manifest. By grace, He will cause the overflow of His life to cleanse and to purge you out of your old mind and your old ways. By grace, we put off the old and we put on the new. Paul writes again in Ephesians 4, 20-24, but you have... Not so learn Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, but you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You do that by grace, church. You fail. Remember, I always liken it to like a kid. Learning to eat, learning to walk, learning to run, learning to ride a bike. You're not going to succeed the first time. You may fail many times. God doesn't stop being your father because you fail. Because God is your father, he helps you get up and he helps you go again. And he walks with you through it. Through the mess, through the pain, through the suffering, through the failure, he walks with you through it, promising never to leave you or forsake you. And He walks with you through it because He is constantly working in you to mold you and to shape you and to conform you to the very image of Jesus. There is power in unity. This is why we don't give up on one another. This is why we walk with one another. This is why we live with one another. This is why we worship with one another. This is why we learn with one another. This is why we grow together as a body. You notice that God gave us a picture in the natural. I mean, 
both of my feet are size 10 and a half to 11, depending on the cut of the shoe. I don't have one shoe that's a 13 and one shoe that's a 5. My, our, our bodies grow together. That's a picture in the natural of what is supposed to happen in the spiritual. We're to grow together. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that when one part of the body hurts, all the body hurts. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. For he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Go home today and do an experiment. Just take a little piece of sewing thread and see how easy it is to break. But then take three pieces and wind them together and see how much stronger that three-stranded cord is. This is a picture of unity. This is why the Bible calls us to be one. This is what was happening at Babel. Though it was in sin and rebellion against God, those men were unified, opposed to God. And it should inform us of the power that we have in the unity that's been purchased for us in Christ Jesus. We who were once many and separated have become joined together and made one in Christ. There is truly power in our unity Our enemy knows this. Husbands, wives, this is why the enemy works so hard to bring division in marriages, in families. In churches, this is why disunity and division is rampant because the enemy knows God's purpose is unity. It gives a witness, oneness does. And so what does he do? He comes and he sows division. And this is why the devil works tirelessly to divide us in whatever realm and in every realm because the enemy is trying to weaken us and the witness of his wisdom and his glory. This is why Paul instructs us in Ephesians 4.27 to give no place to the devil and why he wrote so extensively about our unity in the spirit as one body in Christ. Paul understood that our unity is not a work of man in the weakness of the flesh but a work of God in the power of the Spirit. And he wanted the church and he wants the church. The Spirit of God wants the church to understand this today. That there's power in unity, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here's a question I have for you, church. Do we have a unified faith to be a witness in this city? To believe for increase in the church, to work and to give sacrificially, to see the provision of earth and heaven come in to carry out His great commission in our city through this body that we call Christ Fellowship Church? It's an important question for us to answer, especially those who consider themselves members of this body. Or if you're considering becoming a member of this body, this is an important question. Because we're not here just to have a nice church service every Sunday. We're here ultimately to effect transformation in the hearts and the minds and the lives of real people. The Bible commands us, Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples. And that's got to begin right here in my heart before I can make a disciple of anyone else, discipleship has to happen in my heart. 
And from there, it moves out. We are all commanded that by Jesus. So here's a challenge. But before I challenge you, I want to confess to you. Because this is the truth. I confess to you that I am stubborn. I am stiff-necked. I'm stuck in my ways. But God in His grace is working in me. And I trust and I pray that He is working in you. And my prayer is constantly, God, change me. Change me, God. And the more I can clearly see God's grace, the more clearly I see my need for God to change me. God, change me, mold me, shape me into who you desire me to be. I challenge you to pray that same prayer. To see your need for God to change you and to desire that God would change you. I challenge you to consider that we are to to live in a constant overflow of His life and love and grace. That who we are should determine what we do and when we do it. And if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, then follow Him. Seek Him. Desire Him. Give witness to His wisdom and His glory at all times and all things as you live your life. When you fail, repent. But don't give in and don't give up. For God never gives in and never gives up on us. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Philippians 1.6 reveals that He has promised to complete the good work that He began in us even until the day of Jesus Christ. So be encouraged and know that there is power and unity. And this is why God has called us together. Because how are we going to grow? We're going to grow together. How are we going to impact our community? We're going to do it together. How are we going to comprehend the finished work of Christ? We're going to do it together. We're going to do it personally, individually, but we're not going to do it only personally and only individually because that's not how we're called to do it. We're called to do it together. And when I fail, I hope you will be there to pick me up. And when you fail, I promise that I will be there to pick you up. This is what it means to be a body, that we don't let pride keep us from reaching out or calling out when we need help. So let's pray. Let's all stand. Don't be content. I challenge you. I challenge you to examine yourself. And if you find complacency, you find spiritual apathy, I challenge you to do something about that. I challenge you to ask God to do something about that because you can't really do anything about it, but God can. You confess that sin to God and ask Him to change you for His glory. Amen. Father, I thank You that You have made us one. Help us, God, to comprehend and to walk in that reality of unity that you have already provided for us in Christ Jesus. We pray that 
your life in us would overflow and give witness to your wisdom and to your glory. It's a simple prayer, God. But if we would seek that with all of our heart, if we would desire that with all of our heart, the power that exists to see real change and real transformation in us personally, in us corporately, in our community, in our city, in our circles of influence. There's no limit to it, God. We ask that you would do it for your glory. And Father, as we get ready to go next door, I pray for the meal. I thank you for all the food that's next door. I thank you for those that prepared it. We ask, God, that it would be nourishment to our bodies. We ask for a good time of fellowship. We ask, God, that the, the finances that are given uh, in this meal, for this meal, Lord, would be multiplied for the glory of your kingdom as they go to our missionaries to do the work of the kingdom and the work of the gospel. Lord, what we pray today for this body called Christ Fellowship, we pray for your church, not only in this city, but across this nation and across the world. Your church would glorify you and be a witness to this world and the powers and principalities that your wisdom and your glory would be known. In Jesus' name, amen.